I remember hearing one of your sermons or one of your teaches at Fellowship, and on stage there was this brown chair. So uh, this incident happened in a kudzu, an empty cut, uh, lot across the street from my parents' house, and uh, under the, the, the shelter of kudzu, I was abused. Through that experience, uh, my heart and soul as a little boy was lanced. But as a 10-year-old, and you said it was 25 years mm -hmm. before you mentioned that. So, I mean, your parents came home. They probably sensed maybe something's wrong, but you didn't say anything. I did not. Quote, no one ever moves forward while chained to the past. Author unknown. Has something happened to you in the past that has caused you to get stuck in the present? You want to move forward, but this event, this memory, this trauma just keeps on haunting you. It won't leave you. It's attached like a ball and chain. It has kept you from moving forward like an anchor stuck in the depths of your own ocean. It has now defined you. You don't want it to, but you can't help but feel that this is just who you are. How does someone break the chains of hurt in their past? How does someone become unstuck? Is this even possible? These are the questions that I want to ask our guest today as he shares his life change story. So, hey, friend, welcome to my podcast. Why don't you introduce yourself and let the listeners know who you are? Hey, Eric, I'm Chip Jackson, and I'm on staff at Fellowship Bible Church here in Northwest Arkansas, and I'm team leader for the uh, training center. Fellowship has a church-based training center that's all about uh, equipping and empowering leaders to multiply for kingdom advancement. So uh, Lynn and I have been here about 25 years and with our kids and now some grandkids, and so yeah. Welcome to my podcast. Glad that you're here. The listeners don't know anything about you, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your past? Where did you grow up? And I, I know the answer to that, but most of the listeners won't. So tell us where you grew up, where you were born, and how many siblings you had, and um, you know your parents, were they married, divorced? Just tell us a little bit about your past. Yeah, man, I grew up in Auburn, Alabama, War Eagle. Uh, I will note that I, uh, for several years being here in Northwest Arkansas, I've always been hog friendly for job security. <laughs> but uh, our youngest son, Gage, uh, was big red uh, for three years. So we, we're all in. We're hog fans. You know, <laughs> when one of your kids is down on the court or out on the field. Uh, so, yeah, but grew up in Auburn. My mom and dad, Margaret and Tommy Jackson, uh, just were wonderful parents. We, we had a pretty uh, good upbringing overall. Um, moved around a little bit. Uh, dad was a, a high school teacher and a basketball coach. And um, so, uh, but mainly there in the East Alabama, East Central area. Uh, we spent a few years in Tuskegee, Alabama, Columbus, Georgia. But uh, most of our days were spent there in Auburn. Uh, three siblings. Uh, I have a brother who's now deceased, uh, Jim. Uh, and then another brother, Terry, and my our youngest uh, sibling is KJ, uh, Kelly. And uh, so we all grew up there at 604 Cary Drive in Auburn, just uh, about a mile and a half north of Jordan-Hare Stadium. Uh, so it was all a good experience, most of it. Yep. So how was it like growing up in the Jackson house? I mean, was uh, we, did you have a good relationship with your mom and dad? Were your brothers and sisters, did you fight like cats and dogs, or were you guys really close? Yeah, Eric. I, you know, at this age in life, you realize everybody's jacked up. 
I mean, <laughs> everybody's got stuff. And we had our stuff, but we just had a lot of fun with our stuff. Um, uh, there were issues of substance abuse, particularly uh, with a couple of my siblings that were, were hard issues. But uh, with Dad being a coach, uh, and he coached um, football, basketball, baseball, we were usually on a field, on a court, or on a diamond somewhere. And so my dad did a good job of raising us as a team and the team concept. And it wasn't a perfect team. As any team, we have our issues of dysfunction. But uh, overall, when you look at the, the art of the narrative and how they raised my siblings and myself and the type of grandparents they were to my kids and even great-grandparents to my kids' kids um, – yeah, they both passed away uh, within the last four years, and so it was a uh, it was tender to honor uh, their influence on our life, their fingerprints, and uh, but uh, you know, with every family, there were issues at hand. But overall, I'm grateful for my mom and dad and the growing up experience I had there in Auburn. Well, now I know you're a pastor now, but. Did your parents infuse God into the family? Was God a part of that? Did you go to church? I mean, yeah. how, how did that happen? Yeah, we uh, we grew up in a Southern Baptist uh, life, uh, and my mom and dad were both uh, primary spiritual influences in me coming to Christ. Uh, God had uh, sovereignly uh, put me under their care and their love and their instruction. One of my most significant spiritual moments happened uh, when I was five years old. I was in kindergarten. We were living in Tuskegee, Alabama at the time and lost a friend uh, in a, a horrific accident. And my mom um, just took some pecans and showed me the gospel through pecans she took out of the backyard. Uh, we, we had a pecan grove. But that, um, you know, your shell um, is going to one day passed away, and so she cracked the pecan and said, what's important is on what's on the inside wow. uh, with your heart and your soul. And so that was one of my first exposures to the gospel was my mom showing me that the promise of eternal life through a pecan. Wow. <laughs> and then my dad, likewise, um, as a teacher and a coach, uh, he just wanted some, some strong spiritual influences in our life. And one of his primary influences was uh, just the, the transcendence and the greatness and the bigness of God. In fact, I came to Christ on a statement uh, related to that. But I remember as a kid, uh, we'd go out. Uh, he was always learning or teaching us, and we were learning. And uh, back in the 60s at the time, everything was, uh, uh, let's take note of this. This is a historical moment here. And so like the Apollo moon missions, we followed that all the way through. And um, particularly, I think it was December 68 when Apollo 8 was circling the moon for the first time. And the astronauts read from Genesis chapter 1, uh, you know, here's man on the other side of the moon. What are these guys going to say? And they pointed us to God. And that was one of my, my dad's big strengths as a spiritual leader, was always pointing us to the bigness of God and the transcendence of God. And God is bigger and broader and more expanse. And then when you can ask or imagine. So, yeah, I grew up with that. Uh, I came to Christ through Fellowship of Christian Athletes, again, through my dad's influence as a coach. And um, we, were, we, were, we were connected with the FCA there in Auburn. 
was your dad, uh, you know, as a coach, sometimes they they bark out orders and yeah. they get very regimented. Was he that way or was he a little bit more loving? He was kind of from the John Wooden school, if you remember <laughs> UCLA back in the day and the pyramid and all that. So he was more of a, a teacher coach than a, a shouting coach. And uh, there were moments that he'd get animated like any other coach. But overall, uh, that was the platform in which he saw he could influence young yeah. athletes. So it, for him, it was more of a stewardship issue. And so he wanted to teach us not only the love of the game, but the lessons of life you learn from the game. Yeah. And uh, so and that kind of carried on with him throughout the rest of our life. Uh, well, that's good. It sounds like you had a good relationship with your dad and your mom and your yeah. siblings. I know I had a good relationship with my parents. and But sometimes, even though we have good relationships, sometimes stuff happens. And uh, I remember hearing one of your sermons or one of your teaches at Fellowship, and on stage there was this brown chair. And of course, that immediately gets everybody's attention when there's a brown chair sitting up there, and it was a recliner, I think, or anyway, it's a big brown chair. And I remember that so vividly, and I remember you sharing about that, and I'm not sure what age you were, but why don't you walk us through a little bit of that story, if you will? Sure. Uh, the brown chair came about, uh, one of my big hurts and one of the big weak spots that I was carrying in my life for several years was, uh, I was molested as a 10 year old boy. Uh, and, uh, through that experience, uh, my heart and soul as a little boy was lanced, uh, with all kind of shame, uh, guilt, confusion, hurt, and pain. So uh, this incident happened in a kudzu, an empty uh, lot across the street from my parents' house. And uh, under the, the, the shelter of kudzu, I was abused. And I remember going back to our, my home, and uh, my parents and my siblings were at a neighbor's house. And I stepped into the home, uh, a safe place. But I was all alone, totally confused as a 10-year-old kid as what had happened. And uh, in our family room, there was just this big brown chair. And I remember going in and sitting down behind that brown chair in all my confusion, all my hurt, and uh, just sat there and wanted to die. I, I did not know what had happened, but I knew it was wrong. And uh, I have words to describe it now, but I didn't then. You know, as most any child at 10 would not have. And so... My, my young heart, my young soul as a little boy was lanced, and um, the enemy of us all just injected a lot of shame, a lot of confusion, a lot of guilt, a lot of um, things that led to dysfunction into my young soul. And so, Eric, for the next 25 years until I was about 35, I kept all that in, and emotionally it impaired me, and emotionally I always processed life as a 10-year-old little boy behind this brown chair. That was my thorn, and that was my weak spot. And so that that night that you walked in, uh, it was just to take a look at, man, this is the thing it could take me out. This is the thing that it uh, could inca incapacitate me as a, as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a leader. And so when you look into that passage of Scripture there in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, God gave me this thorn. And in fact, the terminology Paul says there was given me. And the implication is somehow it was from on high. We don't know what the thorn was, but it was a weak spot for Paul. It was a hurt. And uh, But uh, although it was given to him, he says, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So 
the UPS driver showing up the door to give him this gift looked like he was straight out of hell, you know, uh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And Paul says it, he went through three seasons of asking God to take this thing away from him. And it wasn't just real quick prayers. It was elongated seasons of asking God to really remove this, whatever it was, whatever the hurt, whatever the thorn was. And God said uh, in, in the text that um, he wasn't going to do it. Because here's the power of the weak spot. And when we bring these hurts and these issues of life to bear uh, to the foot of the cross, uh, we find that there are two things that can happen in our life. One is we'll find that there's sufficient grace to, to address the hurt and Amen. to address the, the, the wound. And also that God will perfect his power in weakness. And that's when Paul says, well, that's... I'll boast all the more about my weakness. For when I am weak, then I'm really strong due to the sufficiency of the grace of Christ and how he perfects power and weakness. So that was our diving into that text that night. And um, it was it was time for me to go public with that journey. And so I did it that night at that service you're mentioning. So let me ask you a question. So you, you're on the other side, way on the other side of that, and you're processing it well now. But as a 10-year-old, and you said it was 25 years mm -hmm. before you mentioned that. So, I mean, your parents came home. They probably sensed maybe something's wrong, but you didn't say anything. I and, did not. And you didn't share anything about that. And was this before or after you had received Christ as your personal Yeah, relationship? I came to Christ at 13, so it was three so, years so it was prior. Yeah. So <clears throat> did how did you view God? I mean, here you're, you said that you know, you went to church, your parents were praying before meals, you got, you know, I mean, God is a part of your family. So how, whenever that happened, was there any anger towards God? Was there any blame? I mean, how did you process that as a 10-year-old? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I've never really thought about that. But as I'm thinking now, out loud with you, uh, I, I don't think there was any anger. There was a lot of confusion, but I think the shame was the driver that suddenly I, I fell into a, uh, the performance trap. I, I must do things to make God happy with me now uh, due to what's happened to me. And then I became a people pleaser. Uh, I was, uh, if anybody ever found out, um, you would reject me. And so I'd do everything I could to make you happy starting with God. And then uh, I became an independent decision maker. I processed things internally alone to get it all worked out and just right so that then I could present myself, my ideas, my thinking to God, to my family, to my spouse, whoever. And so those were three of the things that really shaped prior to coming to Christ uh, yeah, that I was in this process of um, uh, just I had to perform, I had to show up, I had to be the guy, you know, that everybody would like and not reject. And then I just went into an, a deep place internally of making decisions about who I was, who God was, who people were. Yeah. Yeah. Did you bury that event deep I did. down? I okay. did. Even when I came to Christ, uh, I don't even remember this being an issue. I remember as the gospel was presented to me, and here's the influence of my dad. So 
I was at an FCA retreat in 1973, uh, and our speaker for the weekend was a defensive linebacker for the uh, Dallas Cowboys, a guy named Ken Hutcherson. Close, but not Hutchinson. <laughs> and uh, it was cool. Like you, he went by the name Hutch. And, uh, man, he was just this big, massive black guy who loved God, who loved football, and just was full of life and full of Jesus, and I saw enough of Jesus in him. I wanted some of whatever he had. And so I remember he presented the gospel one night, and I even followed up and sat down with him. And I said, hey, you're you're talking about church. You're talking about God, the love of God, the grace of Jesus in ways I, I don't know, and I want to know more. And I came to Christ again. My dad would always point us to the bigness of God. Hutch asked me, he said, how big do you think God is? And I went, oh, man, I think God's pretty big. He says, do you realize he's big enough? He could he could just snap his finger and wipe out the universe. And I went, yeah, I believe he's that big. I've had a dad point me to the stars, to Apollo 8 and guys circling the moon and beyond. And uh, and then the question I came to Christ on was this. He said, do you realize he's small enough to fit in your heart? And I sat there with Hutch, prayed to receive Christ, but the brown chair thing, it, I had packed it away, mm. you know, and so it didn't pop up till I was 35, actually. Wow. Well, let's get to that in just a moment. I want to ask you one other thing about the brown chair. So you mentioned shame. Yeah. So, you know, guilt tells us that we did something wrong. Right. Shame says we're a bad person. Right. So how did that event, what did that, what did you think about Chip? What did you think about yourself? Did it change the view of yourself? And you thinking? Did you think you deserved it? Did you think you did something wrong? I mean, what what did what did shame tell you about Chip? Because you, you know you probably realized that it was done to you. Mm-hmm. But did you? What did it start? What did it start telling you? The self narrative that sometimes we talk about. Does it? Did it talk to you that way at all? Yeah, uh, I, I think the the lead conversation initially was confusion. And just uh, what is this? What has happened to me? And the confusion then kind of led to the shame of whatever's happened to me is not right, and uh, this is this is wrong. And then here's where the enemy of us all will exploit your confusion and your shame. The way he did with Adam and Eve over in Genesis three in the garden is uh, he'll uh, he'll make you think it's your fault. And, and you're going to have to cover it up, and you're going to have to find some fig leaves, which I began to do. So I really just uh, I, I, I tried to keep it covered up. And, again, I, it wasn't until years later that I even shared this with my, my parents. But um, And then, uh, you know, the cover-up can't last. And uh, when things go wrong, I'd, I'd try to blame others for it uh, to keep them away from you know, this, this big deal going on, this, this thorn, yeah. you know, this weak spot. So, but it was, it was confusion was the initial conversation that led into the confusion and then the self-talk of trying to keep yourself hidden mm. and present a much more positive version yeah. of who I thought I was, even as a kid. I, you know, it's crazy how you do that, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The mask. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I, you get all your coping things lined up and, Again, I have terminology for this now, now. that I didn't have then. Right. Yeah. So did you, 
as fast forward, you go through high school, you go into co- you went to college, correct, yeah. and everything. So when did you get married? Did you get married in the twenties, or how old were yeah. you when you got married? Uh, Lynn and I got married uh, June twenty seventh, nineteen eighty one. So we got an anniversary coming up at the end of this month. So all this happened. You you now you're going through all this. Now you get married. Did you bring what what did that event? What did your childhood events and dysfunctions, whatever? What did that bring into your marriage? Yeah, man, it brought uh, that same performance trap uh, issue. It brought the people pleasing, but it really, uh, to some degree, in, uh, incapacitated me from really being uh, true to Lynn being fully known to her. Mm. And so uh, we got married, I think uh, we were in our early 20s. So we, we rocked along for 10 or 12 years. Uh, and we, I mean, nothing dramatic, nothing, you know, uh, traumatic going on. But there was just this thing of my heart that I kept hidden, kept, pap- kept uh, packed away. And so got called out on it by her and just saying, Hey, what, what is this? And I'm going, I do not know what this is. And it was, you know, the self-protection, the independent decision-making, the, um, the issues of, uh, you know, just trying to remain hidden, not fully known. And cause you know, the goal of marriage is to be one. Uh, I think Jesus in John 17, really, uh, when he says in a high, high priestly prayer, Father, I pray that they may be one as you and I are one. And he, obviously he's praying for his disciples and all believers. But as a, as a couple, as a married couple, both husband and wife, that prayer applies. And so there were issues of oneness that we would drift in and out of, but this was one of the big inhibitors of keeping us um, isolated from one another from time to time. So she called me out on it. So she noticed that something was wrong mm. and... And you said you don't know. Yeah. But so so was she the first person that you finally said, okay, I, I need to quit posing. I need to I need to come clean with this and just and just let this out. Yeah. Did you was it her? Or was it someone else? Yeah, it was her. And then it was uh, there was a couple of guys. Uh, one being a biblical counselor uh, that I began to process everything with. And so um, uh, and through that process. Uh, particularly uh, one of these these guys that is still a dear, dear friend of mine, um, took me to Psalm 109, 21 and 22, where David cries out, O sovereign Lord, deal, see, deal with me according to your loving kindness, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. And that was the big recognition right there is, oh, okay, that's what this thing is. There's this wound deep down in my heart. And then he tied it to Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, where uh, that's the uh, in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus shows up at the synagogue and opens the scroll from Isaiah. He reads that passage where David's crying out, O sovereign Lord, deal with me according to your loving kindness. With Jesus in Isaiah 61 in that passage, uh, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to do what? Bind up the brokenhearted. And so it was the interface of those two passages of Scripture with some loving understanding from some close friends and community, uh, the healing journey began. And uh, it wasn't immediate. It, it took a number of years to unpack uh, everything that I'd stowed away deep down in my heart and soul. So how many kids do you and Lynn have? We have four. So you have four kids. Yeah. And they're all, are they all adults now? They're all adults now. Okay. Yeah. So when, and I know that you shared at the church, but I'm assuming that before that time there was some talk 
to your kids? And were you overprotective of your kids because of what had happened to you? Yeah, to some degree. And, and, and again, Eric, up, up until the age 35, again, I, all this stuff was just packed away. And um, I didn't make light of it, but I just wanted to have so much fun with the kids and life is good and let's okay. enjoy one another. Uh, again, it was part stowed away. Did you uh, disclose any of that before your teach at uh, on the on the brown yeah, chair? Yeah, it was. And when pr- prior to that, I let them know that hey, here's here's what's going on, and uh, particularly the older three. Gage was pretty young at that time, and so, but the older three, uh, Sydney and Tripp and Colin, uh, we had some dialogue around it. Yeah. Uh, How did that go? Was that difficult to share that with them, or did you have such a close relationship <laughs> that it really? I think it, I think it went okay. It was kind of oh, so. It makes sense why you're so messed up, Dad. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, Dad, why you get angry or why you do this? Yeah, suddenly, and no, they were they were very compassionate and very understanding and very loving. And in fact, um, uh, Sydney, my my oldest, is a family and child therapist, and so she uh, her her vocation is going in and helping kids and families work through like issues and so was she a therapist then whenever you mm, okay so no, she, she was she was studying to be one oh, though, okay so, so she was, was studying that, yeah so yeah. wow well let me ask you this because i this is a personal question for um that means something to me but um so you're a minister right. so when did you receive a call um and did you pick up the phone uh, <laughs> but no when did you receive a calling from god that you said okay he wants me to to go into full time ministry. He wants this to be my life and my story. When tell me about that, Eric? Do you remember back in the eighties? There was a song by Toto called "Out of Africa." Mm-hmm. You know that? Yeah. Uh, Russell Dortch, one of the worship leaders at the Fellowship, plays it all the time. <laughs> but um, my call: I was working for a bank in Birmingham, Alabama, and was enjoying the ride and felt pretty good that you know Lynn and I were going to have a, a life experience there in Birmingham. And got a couple of promotions, and yet the as these promotions came, there was just an uneasiness and unsettledness in, in my heart and soul that, is it really going to be banking? So one night I'm driving home from the bank, and I'm at a stoplight in downtown Birmingham, Alabama, and Toto's on, and that song's playing out of Africa. And there's a phrase in there that says, hurry, boy, it's waiting there for you. Yeah. You know that line? Yeah, Absolutely. And I don't know, you know, it's one of those gentle nudges where the Holy Spirit just says, hey, 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 pay attention. And it was like, hurry, what, what's waiting? You know, there's something out there beyond this banking career. And that was a pivot for me to begin to really lean into. So a lot of times I'm asked, hey, how, how are you caught in the ministry? And I go, well, Toto out of <laughs> Africa at a stoplight in Birmingham, Alabama. And that, hurry, something's waiting for you out there, you know. So we took off to seminary. What is the most difficult time, and maybe you've already shared it, but what is the most difficult issue or thing that you've had to deal with in your years experience? Was it this, the brown chair, or was it something else? I'd say uh, probably it was foundational. Getting recovery and um, being restored uh, from that place, because what I would do, and I'm still tempted to this day to do when I, when I'm threatened or I'm intimidated, 
emotionally, I feel the pull to, hey, pull out and go get behind a chair somewhere and just withdraw and isolate yourself. Uh, so that, that was probably the foundational component of being, uh, you know, stepping into the recovery process at 35 and still goes on to this day at 64. Um, but over the years, as I've refused uh, not to go to the brown chair, uh, I've found that I can embrace that, that hurt and all of that and um, find sufficient grace and see how God's going to perfect that power his power and my weakness. So I had a big pivot, uh, another one, and it was a, it was sitting in another chair, actually. Um, we, our family's been through a series of health challenges and house fires and, you know, loss of loved ones and all that. But this was a uh, fast forward, not long after that Brown chair talk that you're referring to. Um, we, we were facing some calamity as a family that just wasn't making sense to me as a man and as a husband and as a father. So you may have those wake-up calls at 4 a.m. sometimes where you wake up and you sense God's calling you to just spend time with him. And then there's sometimes you wake up and you're just in raw fear and anxiety. And this was one of those raw fear and anxieties. And so I was really just, God, all that's going on right now doesn't make sense to me. And I, I'm, I'm having a hard time. I'm tempted to jump behind the chair, but I'm going to sit here in this chair and ask you to show me what you're doing in and through all this calamity. And again, a gentle nudge of the Holy Spirit. I, I've never heard God speak to me audibly. Or, you know, I, I lean more into the Word. But uh, I was given this picture of, uh, you know, when you're watching somebody um, do a movie and they do their fingers with the frames and all that. And the image I got was, and I know that the audience can't see this, but if you hold up and make two L's connect with your index like a field and thumb, goal. yeah. Uh-huh. And so my frame, I was trying to process all that was going on through a frame that was much too small. And so God just let me know he was dismantling that frame and then spreading it out into a frame that's far more redemptive. And so the pain, the hurt, the confusion, the other issues that have been going on, uh, could be seen more clearly with a redemptive lens mm-hmm. as a result thereof. But uh, had I gone back behind the brown chair, I don't think I would have seen that. So it's just always been this idea of uh, saying, hey, I'm not a 10-year-old little boy behind a brown chair anymore. Uh, and that's a big thing in the recovery process, as you know, Absolutely. is to get your new identity. And so I... I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of Celebrate Recovery. I, I am. I've been through the process twice now. So, uh, and I love in CR where you introduce who you are now in recovery. And so rather than this 10-year-old little kid hiding behind a chair in fear and all that, I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ who is experiencing victory over childhood molestation and struggles with shame, depression, and anger that stems from deep hurt. My name's Chip. Hey, Chip. <laughs> so that's the big win on these weak spots and these hurts is they can't. I think the sufficiency of God's grace is that you get a view of who you really are in Christ. And you have this identity uh, that is far more wonderful and far more redemptive and far more wondrous uh, than anything that you could create on your own. And so from that identity, you, you lead, you love, you serve, you walk, and bring glory to God and good to others out of who he is in you. 
Amen. Yeah. So, Chip, what would you tell the listener who's hearing your testimony, your life story, if they're listening and they've got something in their past, maybe it's a hurt, maybe it's trauma, something, and it's got them stuck in the present. Their hurt from the past has got them stuck in the present. How do they break out of that? And can God change something horrible, some horrible event into something positive? Indeed. First thing I'd say, Eric, is welcome. You're in good company. And you don't have to do this thing alone. Mm. Uh, you don't have to hide behind your brown chair or wherever the, the, the thing of hurt took place for you. Uh, that's the beauty of the gospel, and uh, that Jesus has come, and he sits down behind our brown chairs, and he brings healing, but he doesn't leave us behind there. He, he shows us how to walk out in victory and healing and restoration. And so um, whether it's through Celebrate Recovery at Fellowship or, you know, uh, where, wherever, you're not alone. That's the first thing you need. Jesus says, I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. And he means it. And I believe it and I've experienced it. So you're not alone. The second thing is there is hope uh, because of that and that this doesn't have to define you. Your identity is not drawn from your weakness and your hurt. Your identity is offered to you in Christ. And uh, so you're not alone. There is hope. And, and take the next big courageous step and ask for help or get connected with those who know how to help. Amen, yeah. brother. So if someone is listening and they want someone to talk to, sure, and they feel like that they're alone in this, and even though God is there, how do they process that? How would you recommend help? Um, who would who should they reach out to? Email me, chjackson at fellowshipnwa.org or call the phone uh, line at 479-659-8884. Ask for me. And if I can't help, I'll definitely get you connected to someone who can. Uh, we can start there. It's just that first step of saying, hey, I'm, I'm, it's, it's time for change. Chip, thanks so much for sharing your story with us today. Hey, if you are listening and you are stuck in the pain of your past, you just can't seem to get beyond the pain. Don't let the events of your past define who you are. There is hope for your future by surrendering your past to Jesus Christ. There is a healthy way to process your pain, to change your perspective, to become unstuck. No matter what your struggle is, change is possible. However, if nothing changes, nothing changes. See you next time.